Welcome to the January 27th Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. With me today are Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Patrick. Breck. Good to see you all. Morning. Uh, I, Good afternoon. I trust, I trust that everyone is uh, safe and sound and uh, staying uh, away from uh, bugs and things out there. Uh, I'm and, two days uh, away from getting my second COVID shot. There's the second one. Second one. Something to be said for being an old guy. <laughs> get in line, right? Uh, yeah, and, and you can take a nap in the afternoon. So I guess. Well, I got to get it in the afternoon, so I got to get up sometime. Oh, okay. Well, anyway. let's uh, let's jump right in here. We got uh, a lot to cover, and uh, we want to. Uh, talk about a, a few things uh, in the news today, our uh, uh, review of, of topics in the news. Ambassador Bowers, you want to tell us what well, we're we, going uh, to do our usual going for us today? Our usual trifecta here. Uh, first is kind of reviewing U.S. global engagement, what's going on in the world. Secondly, the doomsday clock and banning nuclear weapons, a new treaty takes effect. And third, Navalny's jailed and the Russians take to the streets. What's happening in Putin's Russia? Well, uh, yeah, there's trouble in the streets and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into that uh, with uh, Breck. Uh, but first, Breck is gonna walk us through the, uh, the question of the week taken from our weekly quiz. Um, I am Pat, we have a really tough one today. So uh, we'll see what the, uh, uh, we'll see how people do on it. But the question of the week is, President Biden signed a letter on his first day in office to the UN Secretary General signaling America's rejoining of this agreement that bound over 200 countries to global go goals combating an existential threat. And the possible answers are A, the New START Nuclear Threat Reduction Treaty, B, the Paris Climate Accord, C, the Joint Comprehensive Ban of Action Nuclear Agreement, and D, the Muslim Travel Ban. And answers will come, the answer will come at the end of the program. Terrific. All right, uh, we're gonna start with uh, renewing global engagement. And um, uh, Dick, I'll just introduce this by saying that uh, we uh, all took a look at an article by George Ingram who is a friend of the World Affairs Council. He was here in Nashville uh, as a distinguished visiting speaker program uh, guest of ours. And uh, he is a senior fellow um, at the uh, Carnegie, uh, uh, excuse me, Brookings uh, Institute and uh, wrote a piece called Renewing US Global Engagement in a Changed World. And with the change of administrations, it's, it's probably uh, a good time to take a look at uh, at what he had to share on, on uh, his perspective. And he's a longtime uh, decision maker, policy maker, uh, legislative assistant uh, in Washington. So he's got a lot of experience in US foreign policy and, and he's got a thoughtful piece uh, on Brookings. So um, take a look at well, before, that. Uh, yeah, before we jump into that, let me uh, just make a few comments. and. And actually, Rick, I'm going to give away this answer to your question. <laughs> okay. So get ready. You can mute your, <laughs> mute your, your earphones or whatever. I've got my pen ready, yeah. Huh? So 
our president, our new president, uh, Mr. Biden, has been in office for one week and two hours and five minutes, I guess. And, but he has been a very busy man, not only domestically, but in the international arena. I mean, and one of the first things he did, Brett, was he sent notice to the UN that the US wants to return to what? The Climate Accord, the Paris Climate the, the Treaty. Paris Climate Accord, that's exactly right. And he also told the WHO, the World Health Organization, that the US wants to rejoin and we'll be getting back in there. And then we also want to participate in the worldwide COVID-19 vaccine effort. And he told the Russians uh, that we want to start a reboot of New START. So this is the nuclear cap on weapons, on deployed strategic nuclear warheads. And it limits each side to 1,550, which is a real two thirds down from what the original START treaty mentioned. Um, and the, part of the good thing about this is the, the mechanism to renew the agreement for five more years is built into the treaty. So it does not have to be ratified by the US Senate. Um, he also at the same time ordered an intelligence review on what the Russians have been up to, in particular the, the Russian hack of many of our internet and communication systems. And he lifted the so-called Muslim travel ban that Trump had imposed against citizens of countries like Iran and Iraq and Libya and Somalia. And he has been very busy getting his foreign affairs team into place. So the Senate has confirmed Tony, Tony Blinken as the Secretary of State, Avril Haines as the Director of National Intelligence, retired four-star Army General Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense. Janet Yellen has domestic duties as well, but she is also Treasury's involved in international affairs, and she's been approved as Secretary of Treasury. And so he has a quality team taken up at the NSC, and he's got a seasoned foreign service officer named Bill Burns to run the CIA. Former Secretary of State John Kerry will be Biden's climate czar and Samantha Power, who was our ambassador to the UN will take over as the head of USAID. And there's a lady whom I knew in the State Department named Wendy Sherman, who will be the number two person at state. And she was the lead negotiator for the Iran nuclear deal. So all these folks are seasoned internationalists and Biden is packing his foreign affairs team with real pros. So the president is making a number of phone calls as well, reaching out to leaders of other countries, including Russia's Putin, where he raised the massive cyber attack against US communications capabilities, uh, the suspected poisoning of Russian opposition leader Navalny that Brett's gonna talk about, and interference in our elections, among other things. He's talked on the phone to a number of leaders, including uh, Germany's Angela Merkel and Macron in France and Boris Johnson in the UK and Trudeau in Canada and AMLO, as he's called, the president of Mexico. So he's reaching out quite a bit. And he's also spent some time on the phone with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and sig signaled strong U.S. support for NATO, much different than the previous president. And over in Asia, 
several days ago, Biden uh, dispatched a U.S. carrier strike force to the South China Sea to show U.S. resolve in keeping those strategic waterways open to free navigation. And I'll bet you're missing not being on board that carrier, Patrick, as an old Navy guy, heading off to see what's going on. So Mr. Mr. Biden, President Biden, has been an extremely busy man, and I am personally think he's off to a very good start, and I expect we'll see more of the same. Now, Patrick, you want to talk about your article? Yes, uh, let's let's uh, uh, dip into uh, the Ingram piece a, a little bit, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get to to some of the slides here. Um, I, I think that uh, we really need to be watching where and in what ways the uh, the new administration engages uh, overseas. You know, you you mentioned Dick that uh, a lot of the uh, the players have been in uh, various positions before. Uh, Blinken's been in the State Department. Uh, obviously, Wendy Sherman is a career uh, diplomat. Um, Samantha Power and, and the others. Uh, so, you know, you wonder, is it going to be more of, more of the same from before, or is this going to be uh, new creative leadership in dealing with, with what is really a different world than it was uh, four, eight, 12 years ago, uh, back when the Obama administration came in and, and when some of these uh, uh, I, I faces... Think that's, that's, a, that's a very valid point. The world is not the same as it was eight yeah. years ago. And the U.S. is going, I think, while most of the world or all of our friends are welcoming back the United States as a, back to the international arena and become a key player, uh, it's not what it was eight or ten years ago. The world has changed. Uh, one of the key elements I think the U.S. is going to have to really work on is establishing and reestablishing trust. Can, yeah. can the other countries of the world who rely on the United States really rely on the United States? Or do they need to hedge their bets because who knows what's going to happen four years ago and the United States may do another 180 turn and they'll be left high and dry. Right, that's the great unknown. But uh, Ingram, he, he talks about some of the uh, elements of getting engaged in the world. And he makes the point uh, about uh, soft power uh, values and results and American leadership and that uh, what, what uh, helped us prevail in the, the Cold War was leadership, not just uh, raw military power, but uh, using uh, American demonstrated leadership to uh, uh, prevail in the Cold War. Well, it was, uh, it was not... also our, our values, Pat, not just our leadership. It was our, what right. we stood for and what the world believed we stood for, the rule of law, democratic institutions, peaceful transference of power, all these kinds of things. And, and, the, and the world would look and say and marvel at the United States. And we were indeed kind of a shining city on the hill in the eyes right. of much of the world. And, and so that is something that now the storming of the insurrection of our capital, kind of again, this is going to be calling into play. Well, can you trust the Americans? Are the values are the are Americans still what they used to be, or is the fun is the country fundamentally changed, and you can't really count on them anymore? Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. I think we have uh, some maintenance to do on the ship of state before we start sailing it into other other people's business again, uh, because we would. <laughs> 
That's a that's a neat metaphor there from a Navy guy. <laughs> huh? Well, ship of state. That's uh, that's you guys over that's there good. at Foggy Bottom, it's good. right? It's good. Um, but yeah, you know, we we uh, we've got some repairs to make here, and and uh, uh, Ingram's piece, and and I really uh, recommend this to to people to take a look at it. It's on the Brookings Institute uh, website at brookings.edu. George Ingram. Uh, and he said that uh, besides leadership and uh, our values, uh, another dynamic that the new team is going to have to be mindful of is that uh, it is a change world. Uh, the U.S. is no longer uh, a, a mono, mono power. Uh, we are sharing the world. It's a multipolar world. China's rising. We do have uh, great power competitions to be concerned about. The Europeans are happy to see uh, a new administration across the board um, with, with some exceptions, I, I suppose, in, in places like Hungary and, and Turkey. But um, for the most part, the Europeans are happy to see a transition in uh, administrations. But that doesn't mean the, the path ahead with the Europeans is uh, not gonna be uh, troubled by things like uh, their recent uh, investment agreement with China um, there's, there's other issues, uh, trade and investment issues. Uh, trade is always uh, sticky with uh, our European allies. Uh, I think it'll be uh, probably a smooth uh, course resuming um, unfettered relations with NATO. One of uh, President Biden's first calls were, was to the general secretary. Uh, so I think the, uh, the military alliance is probably better off now than it was a month ago. Right, Brack, you're you're the historian here with the uh, the view uh, spanning uh, decades and, and eons. Uh, what what does your spidey sense tell you about uh, the the transformation in, in foreign policy from uh, not just the last four years, but I, I agree with Dick that we're we're in a new world and and it's uh, a new path for for foreign policy. You all may you you and Dick may think what I'm getting ready to say is a uh, is a bunch of poppycock, but uh, just to throw it out there, uh, that's course, a that's a good that's a good setup. <laughs> one of the we're all concerned about how divisive American politics has become, and we're pretty well split 50-50. And it's not only uh, opinions or philosophy or or political perspective that we're split on. I mean, we are uh, violently split. We are divisive with a capital D. And I guess I'm a little hopeful that the one area that maybe at the margin we can, you know, get a solid majority of Americans behind is uh, American foreign policy. And I'm hopeful about that because the one thing, you know, historically going back to the 50s and 60s, at least relative to today, American foreign policy has not been uh, greatly politicized, uh, Democrat, Republican politicized in any event. And uh and you know the, the the phrase was politics stops at uh, at the uh, American shores, and it's increasingly less that way today. But the Biden administration has put real professionals, not politicians, but real professionals, in to the diplomatic and national security leadership roles. And those people, in my opinion, at least, are not uh, ideologues. They are people uh, that probably represent that have goals and objectives that I think most Americans at, its, at the broadest level would support. 
And uh, they're going to be very rational, I think, uh, and measured and professional in how they have American foreign policy unfold, not political uh, so much. And I'm hopeful that that on that side, I don't, I'm, I don't have a lot of hope for, uh, in terms of domestic politics, people coming back together, but maybe on the foreign policy side. And if, if, if the Biden administration can achieve one big thing, to me, that would be it to draw a lot of American support for the broad foreign policies they're going to follow. And I think that's a possibility. Well, I, I do not think that's poppycock at all. I think you really got something there, Dr. Brick. Uh, <laughs> makes sense to me. And I think one of the things that, that the Biden administration is going to do, and the article points out, they're going to have to really carve out enough time to explain why it is in the interest of the American public that we do what we're doing internationally. Now, why should we be taking, trying to take the lead in the administration of COVID vaccines rather than leaving that to China or some other country? So there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm optimistic that this team is going to be able to do a good job. And I agree with you that it should be less divisive than many of the domestic issues that the Biden administration is going to have to take on. Let me add a, a footnote about the, the COVID uh, international scene. Uh, I, I think we're, we're at the point where the conversation is going to be turning towards how the uh, developed world looks at uh, the lesser developed countries in sharing vaccines. There's this COVAX regime that uh, is being largely ignored by even the countries that signed up to it. The U.S. did not sign up to it, and it's basically a U.N.-organized effort, the WHO, uh, as an as a agency of the UN to get vaccines to, uh, to other countries that uh, couldn't develop their own, um, may have trouble procuring vaccines and uh, the materials that go along with that. And a lot of people are gonna be saying, well, we're, you know, let them take care of themselves and uh, uh, we wanna get all the vaccinations we can get here first. But uh, if you look at these mutations that are already happening from Brazil, South Africa, the UK, if we're not uh, careful uh, in uh, helping the rest of the world take care of uh, their most uh, vulnerable, uh, this, this thing is not going to go away anytime soon. You're absolutely right. And, and I mean, this is a worldwide pandemic. This is what I don't understand when you know, people think you can't build a wall around the United States and say, OK, we're OK. I mean, you've got to do this on a worldwide basis. And the faster we get involved, the better off we're going to be and the world will be, I think. Well, speaking of COVID and uh, pandemics, uh, let's turn uh, and, and look at uh, our next topic. You know, last week we saw the uh, treaty to ban nuclear weapons go into effect. And this morning in Chicago at the uh, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, there was uh, an event that uh, uh, every January the Bulletin uh, tells the world where the world is on the existential threat by using uh, the symbolic uh, image of um, of a clock. And last year it was set to 100 seconds to midnight. And in this morning's uh, event, they, uh, uh, they talked about some of the progress that was being made in, uh, in nuclear weapons in terms of the New START agreement uh, being positive 
and uh, fighting the pandemic, uh, et cetera. And it, just for those who, who don't recall uh, what the Doomsday Clock is about, uh, it's uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has been doing this for, uh, I think, 75 years. And uh, uh, they have, uh, uh, they've developed this uh, symbolic clock and the furthest it's been from midnight, which is the, uh, an existential event affecting human beings on earth. Uh, the furthest it's been is 17 minutes to midnight. And that was right after the end of the cold war. And it's been inching towards uh, midnight uh, in the, uh, the intervening years. And we're gonna roll a, a little video here just to, uh, uh, to show, um, what the uh, what the clock is about, and uh, bear with me, Dick. You can talk for a minute here while I tee this up. I was wondering, Dick. You may know. I don't know when the last time, or has there been a time? I think there has. Uh, when the when the clock ticked backwards, as long as they've been keeping it, that we actually became safer for a period of time. Maybe in the Reagan administration, when all those arms control treaties first came together, as the Soviet Union was falling apart. Seems like I remember that, but I'm not sure. You're right. Yeah, it it has uh, it has gone backwards. Uh, it has been reset further away from midnight. Uh, so let's uh, let's take a a look here at uh, the doomsday clock.
Okay, well, that was, uh, that's, that's the, uh, the bulletin of uh, atomic scientists this morning unveiling the uh, current setting of the clock. And, and Breck, yes, it has been uh, reset uh, further from midnight uh, over the years. Uh, as I mentioned at the end of the Cold War, it was moved back to 17 minutes from uh, a time that was closer to it. <clears throat> and, and the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the clock has evolved from being uh, solely looking at the nuclear threat, uh, the existential nuclear threat to include, as you saw in the video there, climate change as an existential threat. And uh, most recently, the threat from biological uh, elements, pandemics, uh, and they have a general category of technology, man-made technology that uh, threatens uh, human existence. And the, uh, the, the ideology there is that anything that man has created, uh, man can uh, reverse and, uh, and control and, and make it no longer a threat to, um, uh, to humanity. Uh, so I, I would uh, suggest that anybody who's interested in uh, digging a little deeper on the doomsday clock and the, uh, the movement uh, to uh, prevent uh, or mitigate these existential threats. And if you go to the, the site, thebulletin.org, there are some excellent articles and uh, really tremendous graphics showing the extent of, uh, for example, the stockpiling of nuclear materials, the number of metric tons of uh, fissile material that could be used in nuclear weapons that's just sitting in various countries uh, hundreds of, of tons of this stuff uh, that could be used uh, if it was stolen or somehow gotten to terrorists, we could wind up with nuclear weapons in the, the hands of terrorist groups. Uh, talks about the uh, reduction uh, and proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons. And that turns uh, us to uh, just a quick conversation about the, uh, uh, the new treaty uh, to ban nuclear weapons. And this was uh, passed in 2017, uh, and it's it's called the uh, treaty treaty to ban nuclear weapons, and uh, uh, a a group called uh, ICANN. And uh, let me uh, share with you a couple more uh, slides here about uh, the uh, the treaty. Um, they won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2017 for being a, a champion of uh, of this uh, UN treaty and. It has been uh, circulating for nations to uh, sign up to. And uh, late last year, they reached the required number of nations for the treaty to go into effect. So this past Friday, uh, it was observed that the treaty banning nuclear weapons is now in effect. And as you might imagine, the, the nuclear power states, uh, nuclear weapon states uh, are not signatories to it, but uh, there's gonna be increasing pressure from those nations that are signatories uh, to get uh, some level of compliance uh, from all nations. Um, so the treaty is uh, designed to uh, prohibit production, testing, acquiring, possessing, or stockpiling nuclear weapons. It also outlaws the transfer of weapons and forbids signatories from allowing any nuclear explosive device to be stationed, installed, or deployed in its territory. So that has implications for NATO. It has implications for our relationships in other parts of the world. And this is the, the US uh, nuclear issue. Um, but uh, this is uh, 
a serious development on the front of uh, nuclear weapons uh, uh, prohibitions and and uh, reductions. Uh, Pat, do you do you have a map that shows which countries have signed and ratified? I probably do. So no. you you uh, you take the well, floor here I, for know, a second. I, I, I just noticed I was looking at one, and then there's a. I think the only country in Europe that has either signed or ratified that is Switzerland. Right, Canada the NATO nations not, are. Yeah, yeah, the NATO nations are, are are out of it because the U.S. Right. So that, well, France has weapons, U.K. has weapons, and we have weapons stashed in a whole lot of places, including probably Germany, Italy, and uh, Turkey. So, well, and I, you know, and ironically, and I, I think that this isn't a uh, a unanimous view, but I think it's a widely shared view in a historical sense that the advent of nuclear weapons, one of its underlying silver linings was probably they served as a huge deterrent to further world wars after World War II. And uh, things have changed now because you have smaller nations and so-called rogue nations that have the capability and perhaps uh, terrorist groups at some point. So it's a different situation. But I think you can make a pretty good argument that for uh, the last uh, 75 years, nuclear weapons have perhaps uh, been a boon to mankind in terms of limiting, you know, all out uh, non-nuclear warfare. That's a good point. I stand corrected about what I said. It looks like Ireland also ah. seems not to have signed the ratified. And is that, is that Austria in the... I think it's Switzerland, isn't it? Could be... Uh, oh, uh, looks like Austria well, to me. Looks like well, could we'll, be. We'll, we'll do a. Your uh, eyes are better than mine. <laughs> we'll, do a, we'll do a check on that. That's so, okay. uh, so that's the developments in in uh, the nuclear ban, and we'll also mention that uh, the Doomsday Clock considers uh, global warming, uh, climate change, yeah. and we uh, we are going to start a uh, a series of uh, programs on uh, uh, climate change and the impact. On the, on the world, it's a global issue, and clearly uh, it's it's uh, something we need to have more conversation about. So be looking for that uh, in the future. Uh, Brett, do you uh, you want to uh, jump into uh, speaking of uh, great power competition? We have uh, uh, been observing things happening in Russia with uh, Mr. Navalny, who uh, was was poisoned getting on an airplane with uh, the Russian nerve agent Novichok, went to Germany, uh, was in a, a coma for a while and is, is now uh, up and around and he flew on a plane to Moscow. I don't wanna steal your thunder here, but why don't you tell us about Navalny, um, Mr. Putin and uh, what's going on in the streets of, of Russia across the country. Sure, sure Pat. So over the last uh, week or 10 days, one guy, and as a matter of fact, the end of last summer for uh, several days, the fellow who's been uh, in the foreign policy related news pages over and over has been uh, this guy, Alexei Navalny. Uh, now, who the heck is this guy? This 44 year old Russian lawyer, son of a former army officer who attended Yale for a time on a fellowship. Uh, who is this guy? And why is he getting so much press? And uh, Alexei Navalny is a Russian opposition leader uh, and political activist. He has been a very loud and uh, uh, 
controversial voice for the past decade against corruption in the Putin administration. Uh, he's known for his ability to use social media to mobilize protesters. He has over 2 million Twitter followers. Uh, he has his own YouTube channel with more than 6 million subscribers where he publishes these uh, really interesting, sarcastic, often humorous, but hard-hitting corruption exposés that are mostly about the wealth that Putin and his cronies have squirreled away uh, here and there. Uh, he was a key leader during the protest against Putin back in the elections in 2011, when uh, uh, tens of thousands of Russians hit the street protesting fraud in their election. He ran for mayor of Moscow in 2013, and he lost. But he still, even though, even though uh, he was basically his uh, uh, campaign talks and any kind of publicity, he was basically banned from state uh, media. There was little or no media coverage of his campaign. He still won 27% of the vote. Uh, he tried to run for president uh, in 2018, but was kept uh, off the ballot. Uh, and he has, for the past several years, been leading a movement that he calls smart voting to try and elect opposition candidates to oppose Putin and Putin's United Russia Party. And uh, in a phrase that has really caught on among uh, those not uh, uh, not supporters of Putin in Russia, he calls the United Russia Party, Putin's party, the quote, party of crooks and thieves. And that's become quite a meme now uh, in Russia. Uh, this, this movement, the smart voting movement has had some success in 2019. Candidates backed by Navalny won almost half the seats in the Moscow City Council. Uh, in regional elections last year, United Russia, Putin's party, lost its majority in councils in three major cities. Uh, again, and Navalny had uh, a lot to do that. There are parliamentary elections coming up this September where opposition to Putin will be expressed certainly in the streets and uh, in the ballot box. And Navalny is, and his movement are very much behind that. He's been detained on numerous occasions by authorities, uh, jailed for this and that, uh, has gone to trial in more than a couple of instances, was convicted of fraud in 2014, but there was such a political uh, a protest uproar about that that he later was given a uh, suspended sentence and his supporters in any event said that was a political prosecution uh, to begin with. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has called Navalny, quote, the man that Vladimir Putin fears most. And David Ignatius, who's an op-ed writer for the Washington Post, he wrote in this past week, quote, Alexei Navalny combines two qualities that Russians admire, a mordant sarcasm towards the country's leaders and great personal bravery. Together, they make him the most potent political threat that President Vladimir Putin has ever faced. Close quote. And the evidence that, that this guy is getting under Putin's skin is that Putin uh, uh, ostentatiously never says his name, never says the, never says the name Navalny publicly. Uh, the state media uh, does, uh, doesn't either and calls him uh, from time to time uh, an unimportant uh, blogger. So why is Putin worried about this person that, again, the state media calls a small-time blogger? Well, I think that Putin worries that Navalny just might spark a color revolution, that a mass movement that Navalny uh, uh, 
rises up could overthrow the Putin regime, such as occurred in Georgia with the Rose Revolution in 2003, such as, occurred, such as occurred in Ukraine with the Orange Revolution in 2004 and 5, and maybe like the protests that erupted just last year that we talked about uh, on GNR in Belarus, where the president there, Lukashenko, is just barely holding on to power, and there have been massive protests in the street uh, over election fraud. Now, the stated goal of Navalny's movement is to make Russia, quote, a more normal European country with rule of law and independent courts and free media. So Navalny just may represent, for many, the advent of a, of a Russian spring uh, a year or two down the road. Now, just as quick background, why he's in the news today, in August 2020, he was on a flight in Russia and became very sick, so sick that the flight had to be diverted, and he was taken to a hospital and eventually flown to Berlin and treated. And the test showed, uh, as Pat mentioned, that he'd been poisoned with a military-grade toxin, nerve toxin, and uh, subsequent media investigations suggested that the bad guys here were a team of assassins from Russia's FSB security service. Now, Putin dismissed those accusations as a smear, saying, quote, if someone had wanted to poison him, they would have finished him off, of course, if they worked for the FSB, presumably. But uh, Navalny spent five months recuperating in Germany, and he returned to Russia this past January 17th and was immediately arrested on charges that he violated the terms of that 2014 uh, fraud conviction. He came back to Russia to rally his supporters to contest parliamentary elections, as I mentioned, that are scheduled for this September. Two days after being back, and again, he's arrested as soon as he comes into the country, two days after being arrested, uh, his people sent out a very humorous and, again, hard-hitting video documenting Putin's alleged billion-dollar mansion being constructed uh, on the Black Sea, a mansion paid for by wealthy uh, oligarchs who want something from Putin or have already gotten something from Putin. This uh, mansion supposedly has vineyards and a casino and an underground hockey rink and a hookah lounge with a pole dancing stage. Navalny calls the complex the world's biggest bribe. And his video, which is complete with architectural renderings and, uh, 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 and, uh, and, and recreations of what this is gonna look like because it's under construction right now. This video has been seen by more than 90 million people and it's uh, gathered such attention that Putin on TV had to publicly deny the accuracy of that video a couple of days ago. Uh, now prompted by Navalny's call for protest since he's been arrested and, and prompted by the video itself, tens of thousands of Russian protesters have hit the street uh, over the last week in over 100 Russian cities, including 40,000 protesters estimated in Moscow alone, all demonstrating against the Putin regime. And somewhere almost 4,000 of those protesters have been arrested. The Biden administration has called for Navalny's release, uh, as did Secretary of State Pompeo before he left office, before he left office as have almost all Western European governments. Now, Navalny's team has called for more demonstrations on January 31st and February 2nd, when a court is scheduled to consider his sentencing. Now, Navalny now sits in prison, but at the end of his video, his tagline, his final words are, quote, the future is in our hands. Do not be silent. Don't agree to obey the feasting villains. Now, I love that phrase, the feasting villains. It's a, he took it from a Tolstoy uh, quote. But so, uh, 
Pat, that's where we are. Naval, uh, 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 very interesting developments, I think, over the next several months uh, in Russia from a political standpoint. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the Putin administration deals with Navalny uh, in the short run. Well, that, uh, that place under construction, that sounds like Dick's uh, uh, <laughs> residence, I, I doesn't think. it? Listen, I'm, you're the one who lives downtown in that, that expensive <laughs> apartment, not me. But, huh? So oh, that, yeah, that, my... that, that video is available on YouTube, I think, isn't it? Right? It is. It, it, it is. is. It... Uh, it sure is. And I think it's, a, I've watched about 30 minutes of it. I think it's a video that's like well over an hour. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a substantial video. Well, we have a, a shorter clip here that uh, shows a little bit of what's been going on over the weekend in in, uh, in Russia, across Russia. And uh, Brackett, if uh, you don't mind, we'll, we'll just uh, tee this up. Well, no, that'd be great. I meant to mention that. Uh, thank you very much. Arrest after arrest after arrest. On Saturday, the detentions kept coming, more than 3,000 in all. Authorities had promised a tough response, arguing protests were not only illegal, but a public health risk due to the coronavirus. On Pushkin Square in central Moscow, demonstrators had come to demand freedom for opposition leader Alexei Navalny, just months after a poisoning attack nearly took his life. Some were demanding change after years under President Vladimir Putin. I never seen uh, the other president in my country, and I'm 24, and I'm kind of tired. While others resented different forms of authority. When I woke up, my mom and dad said, no, Kirill, you shouldn't go there. Like, uh, you shouldn't uh, uh, against Putin because you can't. Navalny's not afraid, and neither am I, reads this sign. Similar rallies took place across the country, in far-off cities like Khabarovsk, Irkutsk, and Vladivostok, even as the Kremlin downplayed the size of the Saturday protests. Protesters even took to the streets in remote northern Yakutsk, where the temperature registered at minus 50 degrees Celsius. The turnout suggested Navalny's anti-corruption message, fueled by social media, was reaching the nation, and younger Russians in particular, despite Kremlin efforts to label him as politically insignificant or as a Western-backed stooge. What is not clear is whether it changes Navalny's fate. The opposition leader is currently in a Moscow prison over a supposed parole violation. But he faces the possibility of a longer prison sentence on what Navalny and his supporters say are fabricated charges. The way they took him, the way they captured him was totally against the Russian law, against our constitution and all. And if they can do it to a person like that, with millions of followers and all, they can do it to us. Authorities launched new criminal probes against several protesters whom they say attacked police. Prison sentences may follow. The government tactic has worked in the past to tamp down on dissent at home. How effective it will be this time is a question on the minds of many. Navalny's team says demonstrations will continue as long as the opposition leader remains behind bars. Charles Maines for VOA News, Moscow. Mm. So, uh, so that's what's going on in uh, in Russia over the weekend, um, and you know this this gets back, uh, guys, to the the conversation we had about American leadership and our values, with what we've uh, witnessed here in the last month. It's uh, it's difficult to to go back and and talk to uh, um, other countries about uh, things like uh, these protests. Uh, while we're we're looking at what's going on here. 
Yeah. It undercuts our, our credibility tremendously. Yeah. One of the signs of, that, that often seen in these things is, as basic translates, it's the Adin Zavsiek, one for all and all for one. So it's, I don't know, about the three musketeers or something. Uh, yeah, the, the derivation on the e pluribus unum. Yeah. Uh, I, see, I see your Russian is still uh, at your fingertips. Uh, well, and of so course I just want to add too, in, in, uh, in Belarus, as we talked about last year, uh, even though the West protested about the way the elections were run by President Lukashenko and there was massive protest and so forth, Putin did stand up pretty strongly and told everybody to back off, which they did. And uh, with great use of police forces and the military and otherwise, Lukashenko managed to stay in power, at least to date. But I think that gives some insight into how uh, fearful Putin may be about uh, a Navalny-like uh, person being able to raise those kinds of protests uh, in Russia. Uh, he certainly came to Lukashenko's uh, aid. Yeah, I would beware of uh, predictions that uh, this is going to be an orange revolution like in Kiev or someplace uh, Putin's uh, control of the uh, the mechanisms of security in, in the country is is pretty solid but uh, the uh, the people coming out in the street no longer what, what was the one side uh, sign the volley's not afraid neither am I so it's uh, it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out yep. busy week uh, lots going on in the in the world. Uh, even outside of uh, our gaze in Washington, as we're, we're uh, looking at what's going on in Capitol Hill with the impeachment uh, trial, uh, new new people at the State Department, as as we introduced last week, and and Dick talked about a little bit today. Um, it's just a interest. We live in interesting times. Well, I don't see any questions from uh, from our friends in the audience. Uh, we did have one comment talking about uh, where to find the countries and it's on the ICANN uh, website and we'll, we'll do a, uh, a, quick, uh, a quick look at that, that page and a shout out to, to uh, Bonnie Lee Michelson who uh, pointed that in our direction. And okay, so here's the ICANN uh, website, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, how is your country doing? And it's got an assessment of uh, of all the countries that have uh, signed just, up for this, and obviously, just Africa. Uh, yeah, well, this that's this is the Africa page, and then there's uh, Asia. Um, these are the Asian countries. Click, click on the uh, Europe one. North see North. if it's see if it's Austria. Australia. No, there we go. Austria. You're right. That good eye there. Well, I'm good at uh, jigsaw puzzles, um, and uh, and these are not. Uh, this is not a list of everybody who signed. This is a. I guess you click on it, and uh, this is a new website to me. So uh, you click and see what the nuclear status is. Uh, Russia has, according to this, 67, oh, 6300 uh, nuclear weapons, has not yet joined the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Um, so let's uh, let's take a look at Austria. I think that's the one. Has joined, yep. Has joined, okay. Mm. 
North America, the United States, 5,800 nuclear weapons was not joined. So that's- um, So Russia's got the, more weapons than we do. We ought to fix that, make America great again, you know. But we have bigger, stronger uh, missiles. Oh, ours are better. Ours are bigger. Okay. The best, the best in the world. Quality, the not best quantity. Of money, the best that money can buy. All right. Uh, well, thank you, uh, uh, Dick and Breck, for another uh, global news review. I think uh, these are important issues, and and we will probably come back to some of some of the conversations we had today, especially we'll see uh, climate evening, change. Huh? Uh, yes, sir. We'll, uh, we'll be there. Breck, Dick, thanks so much. Everybody have a good week. Have a good week. Good to see everybody. Adios. Bye-bye.